0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards.
1: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. David Chalian here, CNN's political director, and this is Politically Sound. Each week of President Biden's first 100 days, we've been covering the policy priorities of the new administration, from voting rights to policing to immigration. But behind the scenes of almost all those policy goals are two obscure aspects of Senate procedure that will either completely deny or hold the key to the Biden agenda.
0: The rules of the Senate are designed to make sure that the minority party is able to exert some influence, regardless of which party is in charge. It's called the filibuster.
1: But the filibuster makes it nearly impossible for him to make progress on those other issues the Democrats care about.
2: Senate Democrats considering blowing up the filibuster to push through a massive agenda. Question now is whether Democratic leadership pursues the reconciliation procedure to squeeze through the Biden
0: agenda with a simple majority. Budget reconciliation sounds incredibly boring. It has a very boring name, but it has a very important purpose. Being passed by reconciliation, that's that process where you only need 51 as opposed to the 60 votes needed with Republican support. Let me translate that. He would use reconciliation to pass his agenda. That means that Biden can get what he wants with a simple majority, without any Republicans. Doesn't even have to touch the filibuster. Just use reconciliation. There you go.
1: So today, we're going to explain these two arcane Senate procedures, filibuster and reconciliation, and what they mean for the future of the president's policies. And there's nobody better to help us do that than former Senate parliamentarian Alan Fruman. So it's time to tune out the noise and tune in to What's Politically Sound. Alan, thank you so much for doing this. I
2: appreciate it. Oh, You're welcome, David. Happy to take the confusing procedural situation and to make it more so.
1: This is how I pitched it to the team a couple weeks ago. It was like, so there are these two words, reconciliation and filibuster, that really could define the entire Biden presidency. Absolutely, yes. We should probably explore them. Piece of cake. That's Alan Fruman. He knows more about these
2: two obscure but important Senate procedures than anybody. I served in the Senate parliamentarian's office from 1977 until the end of January um, 2012. I was the chief parliamentarian for slightly more than uh, half of those years. I have trained Elizabeth McDonough, the current parliamentarian, and I think she's doing a terrific job, and she's making the world forget about me, which is a good thing.
1: I think um, for a lot of our listeners, Alan, the recent fight over the minimum wage in the COVID relief bill may have been their first time hearing about the Senate parliamentarian. And if you could just give us a
2: concise explanation— What do parliamentarians do? The parliamentarian is the official, duly authorized advisor to the entire Senate on matters involving its rules, its precedents, its procedures, its practices, and its norms. It might sound conceited to say that the parliamentarian is the de facto presiding officer over the Senate, but in some respects that's that's not inaccurate presiding officers take the parliamentarian's advice.
1: I'm curious, how does one, like, end up in this field? Like, how did you end up joining the Senate parliamentarian's office?
2: I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) (laughs) it's, um, It's considered to be a career nonpartisan position. Everybody who's become Senate parliamentarian has served at least a decade as an apprentice in that office. I served for 10 years as an assistant. Before that, I was working on parliamentary procedure for the House of Representatives. Okay, but before we get all the way into the weeds,
1: I want to step back and try to figure out some of the very basics of the Senate.
2: I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey.
1: Can we do a little uh, Schoolhouse Rock Live here for a moment? If you could just walk us through, just as a baseline for everyone listening, once a bill makes it through committee, how does it go about becoming
2: law? In the Senate, very slowly, because a normal bill is subject to a filibuster on the question of proceeding to its consideration. Assuming that filibuster either doesn't take place or is overcome, then the bill comes to the Senate floor subject to full debate and subject to another potential filibuster. Assuming that that bill is not filibustered and the bill is voted on and passed, and assuming it's passed in the same form by the House of Representatives, it then goes to the president for his signature.
1: So he said filibuster a lot in that sentence. So let's start there. No joke. The word filibuster comes from the Dutch word for freebooter, or literally meaning a pirate. But what exactly is a filibuster? Well, it's changed over the years, but essentially it's an action taken by a senator that's designed to prolong debate and delay or prevent a
2: vote. I asked Alan to explain to us how this parliamentary quirk came to be. The very first Senate in 1789 had what's called a motion for the previous question. That motion was designed to end debate by a simple majority. That rule, that motion was dropped from the Senate's standing rules in 1806. And so from 1806 until 1917, there was no way that a simple majority of the Senate could force a vote to occur over the objections of senators who wanted to engage in, quote, free and full debate, uh, i.e. filibuster.
1: But that's not the filibuster we have today. Over the years, the rule was amended to actually create what's
2: called cloture, which is basically the vote to end debate. 1917 was a watershed year For the first time, the Senate authorized a supermajority to end debate, in other words, to defeat a filibuster. That number was reduced in 1975 from two-thirds of the senators voting, assuming a quorum was present, to three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn, which meant three-fifths of the full complement of senators. And that's how the rule stands now. So let me break that down for you. Essentially,
1: the filibuster was created when they dropped a rule from the Senate rulebook. And then it took more than 100 years to add any kind of mechanism to end debate. One more slight tweak in the 70s, and we arrive at today, where all that's required is the threat of a filibuster. And if there aren't 60 votes for cloture, that's enough to gum up the works.
2: Three-fifths of the Senate is duly chosen and sworn puts the burden on those who want to end the filibuster. It places no burden whatsoever on those who are filibustering. They don't even have to show up. The majority has to produce at least 60 yes votes, regardless of how many no votes there are.
1: Now, that's probably not what you're familiar with from TV and movies. I was just rewatching an episode of The West Wing, The Stackhouse Filibuster. It's in season two, which is just one example of what's called the talking filibuster.
2: It's our first filibuster, and I'm not a rules expert, but the rules of a filibuster are simple enough. You keep the floor as long as you hold the floor.
1: And you're almost definitely familiar with this version of the filibuster from the classic movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington.
2: President, will the senator yield? senator yield? No, sir, I'm afraid not. No, sir.
1: But that kind of filibuster, where someone goes on and on and on, is not typically what happens now, even though you've probably heard a lot about the talking filibuster recently. That's because Democratic Senator and key swing vote Joe Manchin recently suggested it's one reform to the process that he'd be open to. If you want to make it a little bit more
0: painful, make him stand there and talk. I'm willing to look at any way we can, but I am not willing to take away the involvement of the minority.
1: Although, Manchin threw some cold water on the idea of reform when he wrote an op-ed this week in The Washington Post. Quote, There is no circumstance in which I will vote to eliminate or weaken the filibuster. And I asked Alan if he thinks switching back to a talking filibuster would
2: be a good idea. I am not a fan of the talking filibuster. The the talking filibuster does not work. The idea, as I understand it, behind the advocates of the talking filibuster— is twofold. If you make them talk, those bad people who are filibustering, they will be embarrassed. They will be exposed for the filibusters that they are, and they will pay a price. I believe that those assumptions are invalid. Uh, I think somebody who is opposing the consideration of a particular piece of legislation is more than happy to come to the floor and speak Allen's basically saying that
1: senators will be more than willing to talk to the TV cameras, and that reform won't do much to change how the filibuster is used. And it's true. The willingness to put on a show has certainly been true with some of the major talking filibusters we've seen recently. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. But probably the most famous example of the filibuster is the efforts to block the passage of the Civil Rights Act back in the 50s and 60s. Here's the architect of the Senate's longest, uninterrupted filibuster, segregationist Senator Strom Thurmond.
2: It will be the aim of our small band of Southern senators to make certain that every facet of this legislation is discussed, considered, and expanded at great length, even indefinitely, if necessary.
1: That effort, of course, ultimately failed, and President Lyndon Johnson signed the bill into law. Its purpose is not to punish. Its purpose is not to divide, but to end divisions, divisions which have lasted all too long. So I asked Alan if there are any lessons that can be learned from that famous fight.
2: A leader as strong as Lyndon Johnson was somehow able to find the votes necessary for cloture despite the attempts on the part of uh, the Strom Thurmans of the world, to filibuster proposed civil rights legislation. I don't know if the Senate will see another Lyndon Johnson or somebody with his persuasive powers. And so if there's a lesson, the lesson is that it took a Lyndon Johnson and his ability to, shall we say, persuade.
1: And even though that history-making filibuster happened before Allen's time as parliamentarian,
2: he still encountered some interesting situations on the Senate floor. The most interesting filibuster I experienced in my time at the Senate was the filibuster that greeted me as a nascent third assistant parliamentarian. And it was an ironic filibuster conducted in the fall of 1977. And it it was noteworthy to me, as I said, because it was a filibuster waged by Democrats against a Democratic president's proposal, which perhaps that wasn't that unusual in the civil rights era, Uh, But in 1977, it struck me as very unusual.
1: I would say it's probably even much more so unusual for that kind of a thing to occur today. Well, I think so, yes. Because today, the filibuster is all about party power. And with President Biden's agenda in the balance, it's many Democrats who want to abolish it. More on that next.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: It's not the guarantor of democracy. It has become the death grip of democracy. That would be the end of the Senate as it was originally uh, devised and created going back to our founding fathers.
0: The the so-called filibuster is not a constitutional part of the Senate. Everybody I've talked to believe uh, that the legislative filibuster should stay there, and I I will personally uh, resist efforts to get rid of them.
1: Those are some Senate Democrats arguing against the filibuster now that they're in the majority and then supporting it when their party was in the minority. Today... With notable exceptions like Joe Manchin, filibuster support depends a lot on which party is currently in power. Although, many Democrats would argue that the way the filibuster works now, where the minority party can block any legislation without 60 votes, is getting in the way of democracy. So I asked Allen if he thought abolishing the filibuster is a good idea.
2: I've defended the filibuster since 1977, and I, I tell people that defending the filibuster is, is an acquired taste— I certainly did not come to the Senate in 1977 as a fan of the filibuster, but I became a fan of the filibuster, as I think any Senate parliamentarian has to be, in order to interpret the rules and give advice on the rules. I came to understand and appreciate back then that the theory that it was a tool to promote um, consensus and cooperation, theory and practice we're not as far apart then as they become. The idea that full unlimited debate, i.e. the potential for a filibuster, would promote cooperation and consensus, it used to work.
1: His argument that the filibuster promotes consensus and cooperation, that's the argument that supporters of the filibuster make no matter who's in power. Here's Mitch McConnell last month, and then Senator Biden back
2: in 2005. The framers designed the Senate to require deliberation, to force cooperation. The filibuster is not about stopping a nominee or a bill. It's about compromise and moderation. But Allen says that's no longer how it seems to be working. When you think about it, the the Senate managed uh, to make it through the 19th century, including the Civil War, uh, at a time when the filibuster was available. And yet the filibuster did not grind the Senate to a halt on a... in any meaningful way during that period of time. And so the, the idea that a legislative body would not compel action, that a simple majority could not compel action and could not dictate to the minority, I think that's a laudable concept, but it does depend on both sides understanding that concept and treating that concept uh, with, with respect and restraint. In essence, the majority had told the minority over the years, we are granting you the privilege to say, not only so much to say no, you can say no simply by voting no on a, on a bill, but by saying, hell no. We're not going to let you get to that bill. We're not going to let you get to that nomination. And minorities over the years understood that this was a privilege granted to them by the majority, but it was a privilege that could be revoked. And so there was a balance And I like to say there was a balance based on the Senate having a critical mass of responsible adults in both parties. This is the dynamic. You and the minority can say no to everything. You say hell no to everything, and we get nothing done. Or we can compromise here. Do you see fewer responsible adults in the Senate today? Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, you know, to my perspective... Uh, you see fewer responsible adults. You know the, the Senate is is a, I think, a delicate mechanism, and responsible adults, mature adults, uh, were were handed this delicate mechanism, and over the years, and I'm not going to point fingers or name names, over the years, the the critical mass of responsible adults has eroded. I can see the movement to get rid of it. What I'd like to see is somehow to find a middle ground. But I, I, I recognize the pain that it's, its frivolous use has inflicted on the Senate.
1: And that frivolous use can be seen in the data. There were fewer than 10 cloture motions, or voting to end debate and break the filibuster, filed in any year between 1917 and 1969. Last year, there were more than 300 alone. So you can see why Democrats are eager to remove this barrier standing in the way of their agenda. But there are those who say the filibuster should be fixed, not abolished. I asked Alan what reforms he would make.
2: Right now, the burden of ending a filibuster uh, is strictly with the majority. 59 yeas, zero nays is not sufficient to invoke cloture under the current rule. I would like to see at a minimum the vote required to come from senators voting, assuming a quorum is present, in which case those who are filibustering will have to come to the floor and vote no against cloture. To me, that's the most obvious change with respect to the cloture rule that I would like to see. Okay, look, I know we're covering a lot here,
1: but you really can't talk about the filibuster without talking about reconciliation. Reconciliation is a Senate process where certain kinds of budget legislation can be passed using only 51 votes, not the 60 needed to break a filibuster. This process has been used recently by the Biden administration to pass the COVID relief bill, and it is key to the rest of the Biden agenda. But I wanted to know what Allen thought of it.
2: I can speak for myself. I can't speak for Elizabeth McDonough. But I wouldn't be surprised if she didn't support the following sentiment— parliamentarians hate reconciliation.
1: Hate talking filibusters,
2: hate reconciliation. Got it. (laughs) You you got it. Okay. Um, Reconciliation. The reason I say parliamentarians hate reconciliation is because reconciliation bills are a legitimate end run around the filibuster. They are a creature of the Congressional Budget Act of 1974. Section 310 of the Congressional Budget Act says that there can be reconciliation instructions in a budget resolution. And reconciliation instructions create reconciliation bills, which likewise, under the Congressional Budget Act, cannot be filibustered. Now,
1: again, that's a lot. We certainly don't expect you to know about Section 310 of the Congressional Budget Act. We are deep in the weeds here, folks. So I want to take a step back to explain some things. Essentially, how this works is that Congress can pass a budget resolution that includes what's called reconciliation instructions. That would allow the bill to be passed without being filibustered. But there's a big catch. These bills must pass the so-called
2: Berg Rule. President Clinton got on the phone and called me also and pressed me to allow his massive health care bill to be insulated by reconciliation's protection. I said, Mr. President, I cannot in good conscience turn my face the other way.
1: Named after its creator, the former giant of the Senate, Robert C. Byrd, this rule does a few things, but most importantly, makes it so that a reconciliation bill must be budget-related. And it disallows so-called extraneous matter from the bill. We saw that with the COVID relief bill and the minimum wage. So, That really limits what can be included. And it's up to the parliamentarian to decide what is and isn't allowed in any given case. The next big challenge for Democrats is infrastructure. But the Byrd rule could make it tough to include some of the parts of that plan that don't necessarily have a primary budgetary effect, like labor rules or clean energy standards. And not even all 50 Democrats are on board with the plan yet, including Joe Manchin, who I mentioned earlier. He said this week he's not in favor of using reconciliation to replace the regular order of the Senate. But Democrats did get a big boost in using reconciliation this week when the parliamentarian seems to have decided that Democrats will be able to amend previous budget legislation in a way that will give them several more chances to use reconciliation each year, including for this infrastructure bill. Now, the ruling isn't final yet, but I asked Alan, why had this tactic never been used before?
2: The question for Elizabeth was... Does the Budget Act authorize another budget resolution now, which can contain reconciliation instructions, which can be used for another big bill now? And her answer is yes. And the answer is yes, because that's what the Act says. <laughs> this, this, to me, is, is not a surprise. It's, well, the surprise is that people are surprised. Uh, the, the Congressional Budget Act requires a budget resolution to be adopted every year. It's not like it's hidden. It's in the law. It's there. But trust me, we don't go running around yelling and screaming to people. Don't forget you got 304. Don't forget you got 304 because we don't like we don't like, you know, going through the process, but the process is legitimate. So then This brings me to
1: my last question for you, which is knowing Senate procedure the way that you do, now that at least, I guess, Schumer's office has gotten hip to Section 304 and understands that there's a legitimate tool there for them to use to try and enact President Biden's agenda, do you see this now being a thing that alleviates— the pressure, the political pressure, I guess, currently on the left in American politics to get rid of the filibuster? I mean, does this sort of resolve that
2: issue in some way? Reconciliation is a partial tool. There are many things that I I can't conceive of as being able to ride the reconciliation fast track. Obviously, people are greatly concerned on the left with uh, the right to vote. Uh, It is inconceivable to me that there can be any uh, any voting rights legislation riding uh, the reconciliation fast track. Now I say inconceivable. As a parliamentarian, I learned never to uh, never never say never uh, because there are some very clever people who can come up with very clever arguments. But I think it's I think that's, that would be a very heavy lift. And so I think a, a social agenda is much more difficult to enact using reconciliation.
1: Alan Furman, thank you so much. Uh, Senate proletarian Emeritus, I appreciate your expertise and your time. It's
2: super helpful. We're very happy to talk to you. I love talking to uh, process wonks.
1: <laughs> Whew, it's a lot. I know it's a lot. I'm the CNN political director, and I'll be the first to admit I didn't know all of this about filibuster and reconciliation. But understanding how the filibuster came to be, how it changed, how it may change in the future as well as how reconciliation works, is the key to understanding today's Washington and whether or not President Biden can make the lasting change he's promised. That's it for this week's episode of Politically Sound. Thanks so much for listening. If you could please take a few minutes to give us a rating and a review, we'd greatly appreciate it. And if you're listening for the first time, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you get our latest episode each week delivered right to you. Politically Sound is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Mimi Mutessa, Emmanuel Johnson, and Will Cadigan. Haley Thomas is our senior producer, Francisco Monroy is our engineer, and David Toledo is the team's production assistant. The executive producer of CNN Audio is Megan Marcus. We'll see you next week.